uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 6 through 16 this morning. Uh, we're going to continue our way through the book. The Corinthians at this point, as we've talked about, have found a way to make spirituality a competition by way of associating with celebrity teachers in place of Jesus. In addition to that, they've started to become full of themselves based on the spiritual gifts that they've been endowed with by God. And so they've kind of set up within their own minds, as we'll see as we continue on through the book, this idea that there are first-class Christians and then everybody else. And so they've turned Christianity into kind of a competition to see who can do it The best, and as we've seen through Paul's argument here in the first couple chapters, that is dumb, right? It's D-U-M dumb. doesn't make any sense. And we are just like the Corinthians. We're just as susceptible to flipping true religion into some sort of self-aggrandizing, self-centered game by which we make ourselves feel better than others. So Paul's been arguing against that kind of mindset. And he's going to continue his argument today. If you remember, last week we said that we have absolutely no grounds for boasting. There's nothing in and of ourselves that is praiseworthy. The only thing that we can boast in is the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to only boast in the Lord. The problem is, for the Corinthians and for us, is that we have a tendency, even if we understand this truth, that we should only boast in the Lord, to live according to worldly wisdom rather than the wisdom of the cross. In other words, we understand that we shouldn't boast in and of ourselves. We might even say that. But somehow, pride sneaks its way back into our hearts. One of the primary problems for them and for us is that we will think and live according to our pride rather than the truth we profess. Uh, One of the things that Paul points out, he's going to point out two kinds of wisdom to us, and he's kind of been playing with this word wisdom a lot because it was a popular one in Corinth. And what he's actually going to do in our section today is he's going to take these Corinthian words that they're used to using one way, and then he's going to fill them up with his own meaning and use them in a very different way. It's really neat how he um, constructs his argument here. One of those words is, is wisdom, and the way that Paul uses it, a word that might be more familiar to our ears, is the word worldview. And it's just when he talks about wisdom or worldview here, is the philosophy by which you live. It's how you make sense of your life, and it's how you order your choices and your values and your priorities. A really simple worldview is how you understand and explain everything that is. It's how you understand and explain yourself and, and the world that you interact with. And maybe you want to think of it like a pair of glasses you put on, and that's how you see everything. That's what worldview or wisdom is in this context. And w- when somebody becomes a Christian, it's as if they learn to take off those glasses and put on a different pair, right? They learn to explain and see and understand everything in light of the cross rather than in light of themselves or whatever philosophy of life that they were formally ascribing to. Um, Maybe culture has glasses that are, we'll say, rose-colored, and and you wear those, and then when you become a Christian, it's, it's like you just have a different color that you put on or Um, Maybe it's more like 3D glasses, if you've ever been to a 3D movie. Uh, You put on the 3D glasses, and all of a sudden you can see all those images and and things that are going on, whereas if you're not wearing the 3D glasses, it's just kind of fuzzy. And so when you become a Christian, a lot of these spiritual realities become much, much more clear, 
Or maybe we could go beyond that and say that when you become a Christian, you take off the culture-colored glasses that you are wearing and put on a kind of virtual reality headset. Or maybe we'll be really, this is kind of lame, but a spiritual reality glasses. If you put on VR glasses, you're able to see all these things that are going on inside the virtual reality that you otherwise cannot see. And when you put on the Christian worldview, you are made privy to spiritual realities that exist that you formerly could not see. So when God the Holy Spirit creates faith in us, we become able to see these hidden spiritual realities. And so for the Christian, the cross is the hermeneutical prism through which we view all of life. And it's only by the Holy Spirit that we are able to embrace the cross and develop a gospel-centered worldview. It's only by the Holy Spirit that we're able to take hold of and apply to our lives truly Christian wisdom. Paul's purpose in this section is to teach us to make sure that even though we might be professing Christ, professing that we have nothing to boast in, that we haven't somehow slipped those culture-colored glasses back onto our eyes. He wants us to make sure that we've got those off and that we're seeing clearly through cross-shaped lenses. He, He wants us to be the church, to think and live by the Spirit. I'm going to say that again because it's our main idea and uh, had some copier issues this week. We fought, didn't work out, so you don't have an insert. Uh, but if you are taking notes, you try to remember the main idea. Uh, the main idea this morning is to be the church, to think and live by the Spirit. And Paul's going to help us learn this lesson by giving us three comparisons or contrasts that you'll notice as we work through the section. I'm probably not going to do a great job of bringing attention to those, so you're going to have to look out for them, and I'll try to point to them when we see them. But they're this. In verses 6 through 9, we see two wisdoms or two worldviews that we're presented with. The wisdom of the world and the wisdom that comes from God. In verses 10 through 12, we see Paul contrast for us two spirits, the spirit of the age or the spirit of the world and the spirit of God. And then lastly, there is a third contrast in verses 13 through 16, and that is between two kinds of people, those without the spirit and those with the spirit. This is a pretty popular text, and so maybe you've heard it, the natural man and the spiritual man. That's the third and final contrast. And Paul is using all these contrasts to show us that everything we are, everything we have as Christians is solely by the grace of God. And when we forget that and start to live according to worldly wisdom instead of by the Spirit, we've gotten off course. And so he's trying to do a little course correction here for the Corinthians and exhort them to think and live by the Spirit. Let's pray, and then we will get into the text together this morning. Father, we ask that you would send to us your Holy Spirit, that as we listen, you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Pray that you would cause your Spirit to search us and expose sin that is lying and festering within the dark corners of our hearts. Pray that you would lead us into confession and repentance. Bend our will to your own. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting with verse 6. We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, 
we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. They're presented with two kinds of wisdom, two ways of living life, the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And so imagine with me, if you will, we're going to do imagine a couple things this morning, but this is the first time. Uh, imagine with me that you're an actor and that you, are, you star in action films, kind of a big deal. And you are in Hollywood and you get presented with two scripts, right? The first script goes like this. You are in a fort and brilliantly against all odds. You're surrounded. You're being assaulted. You fight valiantly and eventually win the day. Like in the movie, you're, you're, you're waiting for reinforcements to arrive and eventually there's a vanguard that appears on the horizon. You, you become energized with hope. You give a, a really awesome speech and your enemy ends up sandwiched between you and the rescuers. You are the hero or the, the co-hero of the story. Now, now here's the second script. It's a similar situation, but this time you do not fight so well. Defeat is inevitable. And so instead of a grand victory speech after the likes of Lord of the Rings, y'all know that, right? I see in your eyes the fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men may fail, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day, right? If you've seen Lord of the Rings, you know. Whew. They get fired up. They go in there and fight. Instead of an epic speech like that, you hide yourself strategically under a staircase behind some old furniture. You are pathetic and helpless. Then, unexpectedly, rescue comes. And the rescuer has to put you over his shoulder and kind of, in a humiliating way, carry you out like fireman carry style. You're much loved and you're saved, but you have no part in being the hero or the co-hero of the story. You didn't help bring victory in any way. I mean, which script do you want? Do you want to be The Rock or Woody Allen, right? See, the script of the Christian life is the second script. That's the wisdom of the cross. The message of the cross teaches us that we are not co-heroes in our rescue from God's wrath, but that we are puny and helpless to save ourselves. Yet, naturally, apart from faith, we are prideful and self-focused and self-centered, and so we long to live according to the script that would have us as the hero, or at least the co-hero. We want to be the savior of our own lives. This is the script of worldly wisdom, and it's the script that the Corinthians have been living according to. That They've been seduced by the prevailing cultural wisdom, seduced by applause and acceptance. They want to be liked by the wise, the influential, the wealthy, the celebrities. 
And as a consequence, they've taken off the cross-shaped lenses of the gospel and replaced them with the colored glasses of culture. And so Paul is reminding them here of the ends of worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom, he tells us in verse 6, comes to nothing. The wisdom of this age that comes to nothing is simply, it's any form of thinking that is not governed by the gospel. The wisdom of the world. I mean, it thinks that the cross of, of Christ is silliness. But it is the wisdom of the world that God proves to be actually foolish. Because all the resources, all the reasoning power in the world cannot cause one to recognize the true wisdom of the cross. In other words, the best and brightest that the world has to offer cannot make heads or tails of the gospel. Because of this, not even the best minds or the greatest debaters or the most innovative creators or the wealthiest of the elite or the wisest guru can serve as a source for true spiritual wisdom. The most powerful and respected of people who do not have the Holy Spirit cannot serve as a source for spiritual wisdom because they can't even recognize that which is truly spiritual. They're blind. They maybe even see kind of the contours of spirituality in a fuzzy way, but they lack the necessary 3D gospel glasses to make sense of it. This fact is illustrated for us in verse 8. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom. This is godly wisdom. Because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The very ones who are trying to do away with Jesus, who think that they are so wise spiritually, crucify Him, the Lord of glory. And even though they're trying to uh, get rid of Jesus, to put Him out of the picture, they actually end up carrying out God's will. Right? What, what, what appeared to wreck God's purpose turns out through the ignorance of their ignorance of his higher purposes to fulfill God's higher purposes. Note this, we cannot escape the will of God. Though we might riot and wail against his plans and purposes, we cannot thwart them. Though we, may, we might be blind to the spiritual realities that surround us, God's will is done. In other words, there can be no saving faith apart from the wisdom of God. His is the only way to salvation. The only way to salvation is through the cross of Christ. There can be no saving faith that rests on the wisdom of men. Because the wisdom of men considers salvation through a crucified Christ to be foolishness. And the reason it does so is because, uh, on the one hand, the death of Christ is a severe indictment of our hopeless and sinful condition. It declares our utter insufficiency. And then, on the other hand, the wisdom of the world is devoted 100% to achieving and maintaining its own self-sufficiency, its own ground for boasting. The paper heroes who win the applause of a dying world cannot see the truth of the cross. They cannot even begin to grapple with the grace of God because they are blinded to it by self 
reliance and because spiritual things can only be seen by those who have the Spirit. I'm going to get ahead of myself here, but I think it's important to tell you this at this point. Paul is redefining what it means to be spiritual. He's saying being spiritual doesn't mean following the most famous of teachers. Being spiritual doesn't mean you exercise a particular spiritual gift. Being spiritual means having God, the Holy Spirit, living in you. That's what it is to be spiritual. Or as Paul calls those who have the Spirit, the mature. Look at verse 6. We do, however, speak a wisdom. This is the wisdom of the cross, which we're going to define in a second. We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature. It's really important that we recognize how Paul is using language here. He's using the Corinthian language, the Corinthian word, and he's filling it with his own meaning. The mature here represents all of Christians. It's not a different class of Christian, right? Even though it's certainly true that some folks have walked with God a lot longer than other folks, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. I love what J.I. Packer says. He says, all true spiritual growth is downward. The more we grapple with the cross of Christ, the more we understand God's amazing grace in our lives, the more we recognize that we have nothing to boast in, in and of ourselves. We have no grounds upon which to stand and declare our own greatness. And so as we grow in Christ, the, the posture is not one of sticking your chin up and puffing out your chest a little further and saying, I am more mature in Christ than you. No, the, the posture is one of humility. There's not different classes of Christians here. Paul's going to prove this further to us because he's going to contrast those who are mature, that is, those who are Christians in this verse, with those he calls, if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, this is next week, but I want to show you the contrast he's going to make. He's going to call these Corinthians in verse 1 of chapter 3, non-spiritual infants in Christ. What he's saying there is, you who should be spiritual are living according to the world. Christians are the mature, but you are babies. I mean, he's really letting them have it. Makes his argument really sharply. All that to say, the mature in this verse is all Christians. This verse is not one, like a verse that you can appeal to unless you're going to rip it out of its context and make it obey your will rather than the will of the Holy Spirit who inspired it. It's not a verse that you can pull out and say, see, I'm better than you. I'm, a, I'm the one that Paul's writing to here. I'm the mature in Christ. And the spiritual person later on is judged by no one. So don't, can't judge me. That's, that's not what's going on here. The mature are all Christians. And Paul is speaking wisdom to these mature, to all Christians. It's the hidden wisdom of God spoken in a mystery. And the hidden wisdom of God that's spoken in a mystery is the gospel. The message of the cross, the secret wisdom that Paul's talking about here, is the message of the cross. See, it's a great mystery that is only understood through the Holy Spirit's revelation. The mystery of the cross, if you know Jesus, you've understood it. You understand this mystery. The reason Paul's calling it a mystery here is saying it's a mystery to those who submit to the wisdom of the world. They can't figure it out. You can see this a little more clearly. I like to read verse 7 together with verses 10 through 12. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. Now God has revealed these things 
the hidden wisdom of the cross, to us by the Spirit, since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except his Spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who comes from God. To that we may understand, so that we may understand what has been freely given us by God. Notice the second contrast here. The first was between the two wisdoms. This one is between the spirit of the world and the spirit given to us by God in verse 12. Re- revelation here that he is speaking of. Revelation is an act of God whereby what was once hidden or concealed from humanity is now made known. We're able to know God and his purposes and plans for our lives only when the Holy Spirit reveals these mysteries to us. Um, it's a little bit like, uh, and I'm going to steal from Cheryl in, we, in Sunday school this morning, we are talking about uh, how we understand that which is spiritual, and, and she was kind of hinting at this, but, but we want to touch things. We want to use our five senses, but, but spiritual things are not discerned with our five senses. They're only discerned by having the Holy Spirit. And so w- when we receive the Spirit, when we become Christians, it's as if we get a, a sixth sense and are all of a sudden able to comprehend what God has been doing throughout redemptive historical history. That was repetitive. Throughout redemptive history. God's not like, he's not like a fossil that you unearth and examine and say, this is a fossil, this is what it does. He, he's a person that you get to know. And, and the, the, if you've ever gotten to know people, and I hope you have, <laughs> the only way you can get to know someone really well is if they tell you about themselves or if they reveal themselves to you. And this is what God does. This is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit must reveal himself to us because God is known through God alone. There's not anything in God that the Holy Spirit does not know, does not always know, has not always known. The Holy Spirit knows the inmost perfections and purposes of God fully because he himself is God He knows the will of God because he is God and wills what the Father wills and wills what the Son wills. The Holy Spirit, as true as any member of the Trinity, is omniscient, that's all-knowing, about himself and therefore must be omniscient or all-knowing about God. The Holy Spirit creates within the people of God the capacity to know God and the ability to perceive and understand the work of God. Without the Holy Spirit, you are in darkness. You cannot see, just like without the 3D glasses. You can't make sense of the 3D movie. And the Spirit's primary work in our lives is to waken our hearts to faith and to spotlight the Son of God. J.D. Greer writes, The Spirit points to Jesus' words and works, not his own. In fact, there's a certain irony in how the Spirit operates. Wherever he is really present, you're not thinking about him. You're thinking about Jesus. The Spirit's work is to direct you to notice something else. For example, if you've ever driven through Washington, D.C. on Interstate 395, late at night, some of you have, you've seen the kind of just magnificent splendor of the Washington Monument, right? It's like a, a shining ivory needle that's illuminated against the 
dark night sky. It's beautiful when it's not under construction. Hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of lights shine directly on that stone pillar, memorializing George Washington, father of our country. Yet I doubt that you've ever noticed when you drive by the Washington Monument at night, I doubt that you've ever noticed or even really thought about all those expensive bright lights that light it up. Right? You think about the monument, not the lights that are illuminating it. It's because the lights are there to spotlight something else, to make it stand out brightly. If the lights are doing their job, you're not thinking about them, you're thinking about the Washington Monument. The same is true with the Spirit of God. His purpose is to illuminate the gospel and bring glory to Jesus. J.I. Packer once more calls the work of the Holy Spirit a floodlight ministry, quietly turning everyone's attention away from himself and to the Savior. The Holy Spirit illumines the work of Christ, and apart from his illuminating work, apart from him revealing to us the person and purposes of God, apart from his regenerating work in our hearts, that is changing our hearts, apart from his work in our lives, the cross will remain foolishness to us. Cannot understand the work and purposes of God without the Spirit of God. That's, that's verse 12. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. What does the Spirit enable us to understand? That which would be hidden to us otherwise, the gospel. The Spirit enables us to understand, Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The Spirit enables us to understand the hidden wisdom in verse 7. Enables us to understand that God has predestined the gospel before the ages began for our glory. Don't miss this. Before time began, God the Father, together with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, agreed that God the Son, Jesus, would become a man and die for men. For you and me. Before the ages, God was writing the story of the gospel, not only for His glory, but for your glory. Because that's what happens in heaven, is that we share in the glory that is due to Christ. That, that should stagger you. I wonder how you would live today if you believed this verse. I mean, how would you live if you really believed, really knew all your sins were forgiven, all your days were guided by the God of love, and that your future was secure? Would it change how you live? Without the Spirit, no one can understand the marvelous plot twist of the cross. Without the Spirit, we become like those who ascribe to the wisdom of the world, of whom Paul writes in verse 9, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human heart has conceived these things which God has prepared for those who loved Him. Paul here is actually sticking together a bunch of Old Testament texts, one of which we read earlier in Isaiah 64. He's quoting them to, to point out that the things God has prepared for those who love him, the thing, these are the things not understood um, by those who do not have the Holy Spirit. These are now the very things 
God has revealed to us, His people, by the Holy Spirit. Sorry, I'm trying to make sure I... This verse is hard to understand, right? There's, a, there's an already and a not yet to it. But we understand the gospel, and therefore we understand what Paul is talking about, what no eye has even conceived of. We, we understand and believe in the cross. But there's still a sense, I guess, because this, this is often written at, read at funerals, I think, where to encourage us about the future in heaven. And there's also an aspect to it where there are a magnitude of majestic glories in heaven that we, we do not yet know, right? And so I think it's important to keep both of those things in mind. But what Paul's point here is that we can't understand the beauty of the gospel, the, the wonderful plan of salvation without the Spirit of God. Those without the Spirit cannot embrace the cross or the promise of eternity with God and resurrected bodies on a restored and remade earth. Can't do it. But, but we who have the Spirit are able to perceive and believe God's hidden wisdom, anticipated throughout redemptive history, that is now revealed to us in the cross by the Spirit. I mean, without the Holy Spirit, we miss the thrilling story of our own redemption. The Spirit who has inspired the writing of Scriptures has also purposefully embedded them with the Gospel. All of the Bible is bent towards teaching us about Jesus, and without the Spirit, we would never understand that. Uh, let's think of a, a couple quick examples here. Now, everybody knows the story of Joseph, right? It's pretty famous. Uh, it's a great story, but I think we miss the fuller purpose of the story of Joseph if we don't understand and know Jesus, right? Jo Joseph is betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, and unjustly condemned. Yet he rises to the throne in Egypt and is able to save his family and God's promise along with it because God's promise was going through that family. Joseph's life is meant to give us a picture of someone much more important who one day will be falsely accused, abused, and killed because of our betrayal, yet will rise to the throne in order to save us all. God allows Joseph's suffering to prefigure the suffering of Jesus on the cross for us. The story of Joseph is about the story of Jesus. Or, or think of Passover, right? Passover, in a, a nutshell, or the whole sacrificial system, if you will, is a lamb will die sacrificially so that those who take shelter beneath its blood and eat of its body will be passed over in judgment. Without the cross, we are left with this question. How can a lamb take the place of sinful people? It's less valuable than people. How can it die in the place of people? Jesus explains it to us. Prior to going to the cross, he sits over a, a Passover feast in Mark 14, 22. And they were eating. Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And if you remember when we went through Mark and when we were in Exodus, we said there were two shocks of this Passover meal that Jesus presides over. The first is there's no lamb on the table. One can imagine the disciples looking at each other being like, hey, the lamb is the main course of this deal. Where is it at? Is Jesus this cheap, right? Or if my wife might say, is he that frugal? 
No, where is the lamb? So we we can imagine their jaws hitting the floor when Jesus delivers the second shock of the meal. First shock is that there's no lamb. The second shock uh, shock of the meal is that Jesus says, the meal is me, right? It must have been at this point that that we, along with the disciples, if we have to understand, there's no lamb of God on the table because the lamb of God is at the table. And once it becomes clear how a lamb can substitute for every human life because the lamb is the infinitely valuable God-man, Jesus Christ, I mean, John the Baptist's words make sense then. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was a mystery hidden, now revealed in the cross of Christ. That Jesus is the Passover Lamb, the ultimate and final sacrifice who takes away the sins of all who trust in him. Without Jesus, the Passover and the sacrificial system, and to be frank, the Old Testament, do not make sense. There's no good answer to how the less valuable lives of animals can serve as a substitute for the lives of sinful and rebellious men and women. But when the Spirit of God comes into our hearts, the mystery of the Passover, the mystery of the sacrificial system, the mystery of the Old Testament is untangled for us. The hidden purposes of God come into sharp focus. Thirdly, and this will be our last example, think of the suffering servant in Isaiah. Right? Jews, if you ask them about this text today, really don't have a good explanation of it, and a lot of them will tell you I just it doesn't make any sense. Look, Isaiah 53, 3-6, prophesying of this suffering servant that is to come. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we did not value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was laid upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all went astray like sheep. We all turned our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. And then in the same chapter, verses 10 through 12, are even more mysterious as God speaks. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely when you made him a guilt offering. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as a spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Without the Holy Spirit, we are unable to see the shadow of the cross that is cast upon Isaiah 53. Naturally, we are unable to understand the story of the gospel. Which brings us to the third and final contrast. Natural man versus the spiritual man, or uh, just a, a more literal translation, the person without the spirit versus the person with the spirit. This is what Paul writes. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit 
explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. That's Paul and the apostles. They're explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. They're writing down the words of God for us. But the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything. And yet, he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. For who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Got to clear away some brush here as we started to do a little bit already so we can get at the heartbeat of these verses. Paul is not saying that we have nothing to learn from others. He's not saying that. To think this verse justifies any kind of arrogance or self-righteousness or a lack of accountability, that's verse 15 in particular, is a complete misunderstanding and misapplication of this verse and this entire section of Paul. Paul is simply saying that natural people, people without the Spirit, do not and cannot evaluate spiritual people. They don't have the capacity to do so. He's not saying that Christians are not accountable to anyone. Right? We're going to see that in 1 Corinthians 5 in a few weeks. That's how church discipline exists. We're accountable to one another. It's not saying that. Nor is Paul teaching that there are first and second class Christians. Right? We've been saying that's the whole point, that there's no ground upon which you can stand and puff out your chest and say, I'm better than you. I'm more spiritual than you. Because all are equally spiritual if they possess the Holy Spirit. To, to think that there's some this verse can be leveraged to build yourself up in some way or to make yourself unaccountable to anyone it is to repeat the very error that Paul is trying to correct within the Corinthian community. I mean, his whole argument is that the Corinthians should not exalt themselves above one another because they have nothing to boast about except for only in the Lord Jesus Christ. These verses are not an impetus for us to puff up our pride. They, they are... Holy Spirit salt that is to be poured on the sinful slug of our selfish pride. If you ever were a little kid and you poured salt on a slug, it withers up, curls up, dies. That's what the Spirit should do to our pride. Pride, or I'm sorry, Paul is redefining spirituality for them. It's spirit, true spirituality does not make much of self, but much of the Savior. True spirituality is having the Holy Spirit, not self-importance. The spiritual are those who have received the Holy Spirit and thus understand the cross. What it means to be spiritual is profoundly tied to the cross and nothing else. And consequently, the spiritual are profoundly humble. And like the Spirit Inside them, their aim is to make much, not of themselves, but of Christ. Verses teach that the person without the Spirit, the natural person, cannot make sense of God or God's people without... I'm sorry, they say that without the Spirit, the natural person cannot make sense of God or God's people. What's necessary for us or anyone to understand God's gospel, which will remain hidden to us until the Spirit wakens us to its realities, is a revolution of the Spirit. A revolution of the Spirit is necessary for anyone to embrace the wisdom of God. Like revolutions, by their very nature, change everything, right? Think of the Copernican revolution, for instance. 
and you learned about this, uh, and I know you did in school at some point, but let me refresh your memory a little bit. Nicholas Copernicus uh, was an astronomer whose work led to the recognition of the sun as the center of the solar system rather than the earth, right? Prior to Copernicus, everybody said that the whole solar system revolves around the earth, right? Copernican revolution gets it right and recognizes we all revolve around the sun. Now, we, we live a long way from Copernicus's time, so we take this knowledge for granted. But imagine with me, if you can, I told you there would be more imagining, uh, that you can time travel. And you're really into astronomy, and so you think, I'm going to travel back in time, and I'm going to beat Copernicus to the punch. It's going to be um, bronze revolution rather than Copernicus's revolution. And so uh, you hightail it back to the early 1500s and you find yourself in a quaint cafe with the leading thinkers of the day. And you get up and you make this great, uh, not a PowerPoint presentation, but some kind of presentation, whatever they did back then. Chalk was around, I think. Uh, and you nail it. You nail it. You explain to them exactly how wrong they've been about the earth being the center of everything your logic in demonstrating that the sun is the center of the universe rather than the earth is flawless. Then, after a pregnant pause, the silence is broken with incredulous laughter. As the leading astronomers of the day stand up, argue against your suggestion, and tell you, you're crazy. All of us are right about the earth being the center of the solar system. You're way off base here. Your wisdom is dismissed as foolishness. You see, likewise, the person without the Holy Spirit sees the wisdom of God as foolishness. The natural person refuses to believe the message of the cross, which says, you are not the center of the universe. The sun is. That's, that's S-O-N. I did the S-U-N. S-O-N. That's a pun. It's like the call them out when they're there. The natural person bristles when they are told that they are not the center of the universe, that God the Son is. And without the Spirit, the natural man remains blind to the most significant realities of the universe, the spiritual ones. And their blindness is blameworthy. It's culpable blindness. The, the cannot of these verses does not remove moral accountability. The natural man, writes Piper, is responsible to receive and trust in the word of the cross because the only thing holding him back is his blameworthy bent toward pride. And pride does not remove accountability. Without the Spirit, we are so rebellious against the cross and against the Lord of glory that we will not and cannot recognize the truth and beauty of a crucified Christ. It is God the Spirit who first enables us to believe the gospel and then continually reopens our eyes to its beauty. Still, even after the Spirit makes us alive together with Christ, we are susceptible to falling prey to our pride, right? That's what the Corinthians have done here. I think a lot of people are willing to talk of salvation and revelation or, or wisdom as a gift of God and give Him the credit for that. But when it comes to receiving that salvation or revelation or wisdom, people like to take credit for that themselves. And so the foothold for boasting is retained, that remains. God did this, but, but I received it. 
Friends, we must avoid the Corinthian error of thinking we have any ground for boasting. I mean, guard yourselves from having the I get it mentality. You know, I get it. Why can't the rest of these people just wake up and get as smart as me? Right? This is the wisdom of the world that somehow God revealed these things to you and then you are responsible for receiving it. And so you're kind of a co hero in your salvation. You're not. You're Woody Allen. Imagine waking up in an ambulance, lots of imagining today. Imagine waking up in an ambulance, tubes coming out of your nostrils, IV hooked up, and the EMT says to you, maybe it's Jeremiah, he says, you had a heart attack, but I responded quickly. I was able to, get, to shock you back into rhythm and to save you. You're going to need some more work, but, but you're good now. And then you look back up at him and you say, well, really the credit isn't all yours. If I hadn't grabbed my chest just before falling to the ground, my wife wouldn't have known to call 911 fast enough. And if I didn't live close to the station, then you wouldn't have been able to respond quickly enough. And you know what? I've been hitting the gym recently, and if I hadn't shed a few pounds, you probably wouldn't have been able to get my heart started again. So, so really, we both get credit for my rescue, right? High five. No, that's ridiculous. He saved you. Your salvation is entirely the work of God. Jesus is the hero. He's the rock. You're Woody Allen. Sorry. Instead of the I get it attitude, we are to have the mind of Christ, which is tantamount to the spirit of Christ. They're seen as synonymous in this passage. We need to think and live by the spirit of We are not to be those who are prideful and full of self, who puff out our chest and say, I'm spiritual. Respect me. Honor me. Friends, we will never be full of the Spirit as long as we're full of our own pride. You'll never be full of the Spirit so long as you are full of yourself. Maybe the reason that that you don't feel spiritual or feel the Spirit's presence in your life is because you're too full of yourself. What if if we aren't experiencing God's power in our community, in, in our church, or in our families because we aren't humble enough or persistent enough in showing our dependence upon God by asking Him to show Himself powerful, to give us an experience of His Spirit? Friends, we need to be as the man in Luke 11 who goes to his neighbor in the middle of the night and knocks repetitively and asks for bread. We need to stand outside of God's metaphorical window and shout, God, I know you're there! And I know you can hear me. I am your child. I need this power. My family needs this power. My church needs this power. And I'm not leaving until you give it to me. Let us experience your spirit. Show us your glory. When was the last time you asked God for an experience of His Spirit? For a deeper recognition of His wisdom? For a deeper appreciation of the cross? I wonder, are you dependent on the work of God, the Holy Spirit, or are you trying to be your own hero? Church, do not forget your lowly status. Do not not forget your helpless and hopeless state. Do not forget that God rescued you 
by revealing to you himself through the work of the Holy Spirit, the hidden plan of salvation that was decreed before the ages began and accomplished through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't forget it took the death of God the Son to save you. Don't forget to view all of life through cross-shaped lenses. We're going to respond together by um, participating in the Lord's Supper. But before we do that, let's commit to making Paul's words in Galatians 6.14 our own. This is what he writes. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. Be the church. Think and live by the Spirit.